I have good reasons for knowing that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. Jesus Christ is just as relevant, if not more so today, than in any other time in history. Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. You can still turn to God. You can still come and ask God for forgiveness. You know what? You can run, but you can't hide. People have always tried to hide their dark side from God, but to no avail. We tell ourselves that surely the God of limitless love wouldn't be angry with us, even though we persist in walking our own way. Truth is, there is no place to hide, and we'll discover that as we join Dr. Corbett tonight. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 26, where Moses had long warned the people, God will take you as a treasured possession, a special people, and, and you as a nation and he as your God will be on display for all the world to see what a, what a rich, treasured relationship with God looks like. As a nation, you will have rules and you'll have laws that reflect the heart of God and you will become the envy of nations who will look at you and say, we want their God as our God. That was Moses from the very outset of the formation of the nation of Israel. And he said, but if you walk away from this covenant, a key word, by the way, and we're going to have to unpack this word. If you walk away from this covenant, God will lift his hands from you because you've walked away from his hand of care. And you will then become vulnerable to invading nations. And so... The result is that Jeremiah is seeing the people walking away from God and he really just reminds them of what God's word had already said, that these things would happen, except as a prophet, he gives the particulars. And the particulars were that the emperor of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, at that time it was Nepalesa, his father, would come and destroy the city. This would be the instrument whom God would use to fulfill his word. And that is indeed what happened. So you would think with so much of what Jeremiah had said coming to pass that the people would say, Jeremiah, we're so sorry. We've been so foolish. We've had it so wrong. Now we recognize that you really are a true prophet from God and we need to heed what you're telling us. But that's not what they did. They said to Jeremiah, tell us what should we do? And Jeremiah said, whatever you do, don't go down to Egypt. And so here they are in Egypt. And Jeremiah has said, you think you're escaping what Jerusalem suffered. You're not escaping it. You're going to have to deal with it as well, even in Egypt. And here we are now. So Jeremiah is about 70 years of age he's an aged prophet and this prophet is speaking to the survivors of Jerusalem and he's telling them you know everything I have said since I was a young boy on the streets of Jerusalem in the temple in the king's palace everything has happened everything has come to pass and what I'm telling you now will also come to pass. You must turn to God. You think you can hide from God. And here's one of the great truths of the way the world really is. There is no place to hide from God. You cannot hide 
from God. We pick up this story in verse 11 and let's read. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, which is a military term, by the way. It's how God is identifying himself. The God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. It's an interesting, interesting expression. I will set my face against you. It's, it first occurs in Leviticus 11 verse 10. And it's an expression of a king in judgment where someone comes before him to be judged and the king turns his face, which is not good, by the way. Because if the king does that, he does not want to look at you ever again. That means you're doomed. And so this expression God is using to identify what you have done has been very public. And I am setting my face against you. And he says, you'll note there, he's setting his face against them for harm to cut off all Judah. So here's, here's this expression, I set my face against you. What does it tell us about how God feels? He's really angry. He's really upset. And, and here's, I, I think, what is confusing for many people today. If you love someone, I think they think, you will never feel angry with them. If you love someone, you will never be upset with what they do. I think that's how people must think. I think people think that if you love someone, you will always approve of everything that person does. And I don't know where people get that idea of love from. Because that's not love. So what does it take to come into a relationship with a God of limitless love? It takes this thing called a covenant. And scripture from the outset talks about a covenant being the only way you can have a relationship with a God of limitless love. Why is that? Because a God of limitless love does not want to be treated as if his love is ordinary, as if his love is just like any other love. It's not. When two people want to express their, their highest commitment to each other, it will always, in, in this kind of relationship, it, it, it will always result in fruitfulness. That's why marriage is between a man and a woman, because there's the fruit of children. In this new covenant that we are in now, this era, it was Jesus who initiated it. And how did he do it? He gave his life on the cross. And this is the first aspect of what a covenant really is. It's surrender. A covenant involves surrender. So if Tony and I wanted to form a, a blokey sort of covenant, uh, maybe we go into business together or maybe we buy a boat together or whatever it is, we're going to form an agreement. We'd probably handshake and we'd say, you know, you can use the boat anytime. Well, Andrew, you can use the boat anytime. We're surrendering our rights to that thing. There's a surrender. In marriage, it's even more powerful, isn't it? In fact, in the act of marriage, the act of intimacy in marriage, that's what's happening. There is mutual surrender to each other. That's the first aspect of a covenant. And if you think about it, Jesus surrendered his life on the cross. And if you want to enter into a covenant with God, you have to surrender your life to him. There's got to come a point where you say, Jesus, 
I surrender my life to you. I give you my life. Have your way in my life. An act of surrender. It also involves a public commitment. This is not something that's done in private. Because when you form a covenant, it's got to be public. It's got to be public. It's got to be witnessed to. We, we as a church celebrate several types of covenants. One of them is marriage. The other one is water baptism. We'll be having a water baptism service in a few weeks. The same principles apply. It's an act of surrender. You surrender your life to Christ. You're going down, you're going to die to the way you used to live, symbolically going down into the water. You're coming up and it's all done in public. That's why it's not something you can do on your own. It's got to be a public declaration. That's what a covenant is. If you're a Christian and you're asked, are you a Christian? You can't say, no, I'm not. And then on the inside go, sorry, God, I just, I'm a little bit embarrassed about my relationship with you. I don't want anyone to know I have it with you. Um, do you, do you I hope you don't mind. You can't marry someone and hope no one finds out. It's got to be a public thing. That's the nature of a covenant on the land. What else does a covenant involve? It involves a new identity. When you form a covenant with someone, so if uh, Tony and I formed a covenant, my identity would now be one who is in some kind of uh, partnership with Tony. So I might become uh, something like, uh, so Anthony, Andrew might be Androthony. Because our names are merging and he might, be, he might take on another form of whatever the two names would, would mean. In a marriage sense, it means Kim becomes Mrs. Kim Corbett. Or in the old, the old way we used to identify was Mrs. Andrew Corbett, actually. When Abram formed a covenant with Yahweh, God became known, Yahweh became known, Yah became known as the God of Abraham, and Abram took Yah, Abraham. He got a new identity. This one belongs to God. So when you form a covenant, your identity changes. When you become a Christian, you're no longer whoever you were. You are now a follower of Christ. That's your identity. That's your primary identity. What else does it involve? It involves property and protection. Whatever is yours... When you enter into the highest form of a covenant with someone, you surrender it to them. And when Jesus forms a covenant with us, he, he gave everything that was his. And when we come to form a covenant with him, for what it's worth, we give him everything that we have. Yet when you get in your car to drive home, it's not your car. It's Jesus' car. It's his. And for some of you go, well, actually, that's a really positive thought. He can fix it up and pay the repair bill because it's his. And that's actually not a bad way to look at it. Every problem you have, because a covenant involves not just property, but protection. It says this. See, if Tony and I were in a covenant together back in the old days, this is what we would do. And we would, we would take, I'd take off my, 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 my bow, which would be huge, and Tony take off his bow, which would be little, and, and, and we, would, we would swap weapons, and people would see Tony walking around with my bow over his shoulder and go, oh, he's in a covenant with Andrew. Whoa, better not touch him, uh, because you know how scary that would sound. And 
he would have, and I'd give him my sword and he'd give me his sword and people would see, you know, property of Tony Boyle and, and say, so, ooh, if I touch, if I touch Andrew, I'm actually, I'm going to be picking on that big bloke as well, Tony. So second thought about that. And what we would do is we would take those swords and we would, we would actually make a cut that's going to cause a scar so that we would have a lifelong reminder of the covenant that we are in together. We would take that, we would cut and we would then take our, our cut wrist, just slightly cut, and we would, we would flow our blood together as a reminder, as a way of saying, your blood flows through me and my blood now flows through you. We are bonded together, closer than brothers. And the weapons are exchanged, the, the, the mark is made on the hands, and we would then take an animal, the, one of the, the officiating person of the covenant, some kind of priest would take an animal, take one of our swords, and we would slay the animal with our hands on the animal, and we would say, whatever is about to happen to this animal, so be it done to us if we break this covenant with each other. And then we'd have roast beef. Uh, literally, we would eat the animal. So again, it's, it's in him, it's in me, and it's in the witnesses. We all testify to this. And when Jesus died on the cross... His wrist was marked with nails. His blood was shed. And his blood spiritually has to flow into our life. That's why we partake of communion. It's highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. I don't even like using that word because it's actually more than symbolic. And when, when Jesus died on the cross, we now take his weaponry so that when someone touches us, they're not just touching us, they're touching someone who belongs to Jesus. And that's why scripture says, whatever you now do, do everything in the name of Jesus. So that's what a covenant is. Now, if you get that, it involves all of those aspects, and it's really powerful. And if you understand that, you understand the only way you can enter into a relationship with a God of limitless love is to enter into a covenant with him. To enjoy that limitless love. Otherwise you're saying to God, your love is no different to any other kind of love. And what an insult that is. And so as I mentioned, Jesus died on the cross. He, he is like that animal that was slain. He's like the animal that is the sacrificial animal of the, the covenant formation. And so there's penalties there's penalties for breaching the covenant. If Tony said, well, Andrew, you're not going to use the boat that we bought together now. Well, there'd be pe- there would be penalties to pay. I'm not sure what I would do to Tony, but there would be. In the old days, there could be severe penalties because we took a vow. We said, you know, if either of us break this covenant, then whatever's going to happen to this animal, so be it done to us. And really, when Jesus died on the cross... We are saying this, that's what our sin deserves. And if we don't accept that Jesus is the substitute for our sins, then so be that done to us. Because it wasn't just the nails that broke the heart of Jesus on the cross, was it? It was when he cried out, Eli, Eli, sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he experienced a breach of relationship. Imagine experiencing that anguish for eternity because that's what awaits those 
who refuse the invitation from God to come into a covenant relationship with him. So limitless love is not, I'm happy with whatever you do. Do whatever you want. No, it has penalties associated with it. It has conditions associated with it. And you need to understand that because these people that Jeremiah's talking with had made a covenant with God and they had not lived up to it. Now, I want you to know that we're going to take the first part of verse 12 because it's so long and we'll look at this. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live. And that's an expression of obstinacy. Because God had already said, don't go down to Egypt. Well, they'd set their faces. Remember, it says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? It's a, it's a picture of, of determination. These people were determined to disobey God. And here we have a picture where these people utterly determined to disobey God. Here they were. They'd set their face against God to go down to Egypt. Who, so I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live and they shall be consumed. And that's not what they wanted to hear because they actually thought they were now in hiding from Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon. They thought they were going to get away with this and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt, they shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed from the least to the greatest, they shall die by the sword and by famine. They shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. In other words, they will become an expression that you would read on the wall of a public toilet in a very sordid district. It, it, it might be easy to miss this, but let's just run through, paraphrase what Jeremiah has just said. Every one of you who has come from Judah, every one of you who has come from Judah to this place in Egypt with the view that you're now hiding from God, you're hiding from Nebuchadnezzar, you will die. You will be chased down and you will die. It's a horrible picture. And I said to you before that Jeremiah is narrating this and his secretary Baruch is writing this down. And Baruch hears this in this chapter for the first time. And Baruch and Jeremiah, Jeremiah who clearly got it. You see, God is saying all of you, except for a few fugitives, whom will have a purpose in keeping the bloodline going, you will all die. You know who that included? It included Jeremiah and it included Baruch himself. When Jeremiah says you will all die, he is saying we will all die. This is very, very moving, very moving. Verse 13, I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine and with pestilence. And the last verse we're going to look at, verse 14, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah. Pretty encompassing. There's a slight little 
clause at the end here. It says, to which they desire to return to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives, some fugitives who will keep the bloodline going. I want you to understand when Jeremiah says this, he's, he, he's got a horse in this race. It's not like he's just delivering some cold word from God that has no bearing on his situation at all. He is directly and immediately affected by what he's now telling these people. So here's Jeremiah saying, really holding out hope. (laughs) It's not too late. You can still repent. You can still turn to God. You can still forsake your sin. You can still come and ask God for forgiveness. He is, after all, the God of limitless love. You can experience his love. Each of these refugees in Egypt, they had ample evidence that what Jeremiah was telling them really was from God. They had ample evidence that Jeremiah was a true prophet. They had ample evidence of it. And yet they refused to believe. And this is one of the things that concerns me when some people say, I would believe in God if I had more evidence. So faith in God is not believing something despite the evidence. It's believing something because there is evidence. And these people that Jeremiah are talking to, they had an abundance of evidence and they refused to believe. I have good reasons for knowing that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. I have good reason for knowing that Jesus Christ wasn't just someone who lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ is just as relevant, if not more so today, than in any other time in history. How would you feel, Jeremiah, 70 years of age? You've been, you've been prophesying for the last six, 55, 60 years, and these people are still still rejecting everything you say. And here in your final weeks, they're still rejecting you. Jeremiah is paying a very high price to share this word. A very high price. Because not only is he saying, you will die, he is saying, we will die. He is using famine, sword and pestilence that he himself will experience. It's a high price. And because of that, you know, I, I know that there are people who they will serve God if the going is good. I reckon Jeremiah stands as one of the preeminent examples of someone who is saying, I will serve God no matter what the price. I will serve God whether it's convenient or inconvenient. I will serve God whether I'm comfortable or whether I'm not comfortable. I will serve God whether I'm received or rejected, whether I'm liked or not liked, whether the crowd approves or whether the crowd disapproves, I will serve God. And I think he's the preeminent example. If you've got a better example apart from Christ himself, who is the chief example of this, I'd sure like to know about it because I must have gone blank when I, when I concluded that Jeremiah must be the one. So he's one of the greatest examples of serving God despite the lack of personal gain. And this is in an, in an era when, you know, you've got some preachers who are raising money to buy $68 million private jets. You've got some preachers living in $20 million mansions in some of the most exclusive suburbs of America. 
And here you've got Jeremiah who has not, a, has not got a cent to his name. And he won't ever have a cent to his name. And he's not complaining. He's being faithful to God. So this is not just a cold word. This is a word that comes from his heart. He feels moved to share this with his people. He, as we come to this, this closing part of his life, we can see that he has faithfully served God and he's faithfully cared for the people that God has placed in his care. And that's what it takes. To be faithful to God is the only way you can actually care for someone else, to genuinely care for someone else. And yet, despite his heart of love and compassion, after all, he's known as the weeping prophet, the one who wept as he prophesied because he cared for the people he was talking to so much. He was utterly rejected. I want to contrast this with today and then make some closing comments about what we're seeing here in this passage. Jeremiah is saying, because you've rejected God, you'll experience famine, sword and pestilence. Can I tell you that today there are three reasons why God doesn't ordinarily use famine, sword and pestilence to judge nations? Notice this, Romans 2, 4, it says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So the New Testament says, because of these witnesses, the Holy Spirit, spirit-filled believers, and spirit-anointed word, God is now patient with people. But don't misunderstand his patience. Don't misunderstand that for acceptance of whatever. That's not true. Here's my question to you. And this is a question to you, Christian. Because maybe you haven't appropriately responded to God's invitation to form a covenant with him. I remind you, a covenant is surrender. A covenant is where you say, God, have your way in my life. Will you respond to God's invitation? Perhaps you've never known Christ. Perhaps you've never enjoyed peace with God. You have an invitation right now to do so. An invitation to come and form a covenant with him. We, we started off this section where these people thought they were hiding from God and where Jeremiah has said to them, there's no place to hide. In fact, it was the psalmist who had said, where shall I go and your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? And he goes on in that psalm and he says, I could, I could go to the furthest corners of the earth and there you are. I could go into hell itself and there you are. There really is no place to hide. Christian, is God tugging at your heart? Is God saying something to you? Is God challenging you, calling you? Then you need to respond. If you haven't yet responded, you haven't turned to Christ in your heart, then I'm going to pray a prayer and I'm going to invite you to do. Would you pray with me, please? God, I pray that you look at my heart. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be a leader who is one thing on a Sunday and another thing on a Monday. I don't want to be someone who is a showman. I want to be someone 
who stands in the shoes of a prophet and talks about you because I know you. And it's my prayer right now that everyone in this church will know you, that we will crave to know you, that we will be surrendered to you. And Lord, it's also my prayer for those who are listening, those who are watching now and they've never formed a relationship with you. They've never come into covenant with you. And that first step is surrender. You've never done that. Then I invite you to do that right now. I invite you to turn to God. It's a prayer. And a prayer is just simply talking to God. There's no magic words. It's something from your heart. And God can hear the whispers of your heart. He can read your mind. He knows the very next word you're going to speak in your mind, even before you do. So you can say in your mind, from your heart, God, have your way in my life. I surrender to you. I want to live for you and live the kind of way that you want me to live. I ask you to help me to do so. Forgive me. I come to you now. I'm yours. And that word amen means let it be. And so, Father, I pray. Amen. In spite of Jeremiah's preaching, the people refused to listen to God, rejecting him and his word. How are you going to respond to God's invitation to form covenant with him? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, No Place to Hide, are available via the website findingtruthmatters.org or by contacting us at Lagana Media, P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.